and the thing that that brought to mind was was Helmut von Molkel the Elder. No plan survives contact with the enemy, or or slightly less prosaically, uh, Mike Tyson's. Everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the mouth, and 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 I think that's the biggest learning point. You know, you can do check rides and go, yeah, I can handle stress and I can sit in the sim and I can deal with all this and da, da, da. until it actually happens to you. And it doesn't happen that often. Um, you just don't know what it feels like. OK, welcome back then to Fast Ship Performance. I'm Tim Davies and today we've got a guest on, a good friend of mine, a guy called John Dunn, I served in the Air Force with who went through a bit of a traumatic emergency back in 2007 in a Takano T1 aircraft out of RF Lintanu. So we thought we'd chat through that emergency and chat through some of the uh, some of the lessons that we can take from it to make our, ourselves more successful in our everyday lives, of course. John, you're on the line. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, actually. Yeah, not, not a professional pilot anymore, but... You're not um, flying still, anymore? No, well, I still fly for the um, Air Experience flight for uh, as an RAF volunteer reserve which is quite good fun um so I slake my aviation thirst there on a monthly basis but uh, not as a professional so where are you flying out of them with the uh, with the AFs so flying out of Cosford on 8 AAF um right. which is quite enjoying get I only get about 40 or 50 hours a year there um because my full-time job takes up most of my time now I'm uh, I'm a senior manager with BT so I've I've given up professional aviation um, I joined BT five years ago on their fast track leadership scheme, which has been a, a bit of a roller coaster ride. But the thing that I have learned um, in management uh, is that people are people, and I lean pretty heavily on uh, on the human performance work I did as a safety officer in the Air Force, and um, it's the coaching that we provided to uh, students going through their training in the in the qualified air, aircrew performance coaching stuff is has been massively useful to me and and the the real takeaway for me is that that actually everybody needs human factors training not because they're involved in aviation but because they're human oh yeah yeah i totally agree and i think this is what we try and do on the podcast here and with the blogs and stuff that i put out is to try and get that across to some people and something i discussed with you before we just went live on this call was um a group that I belong to on Facebook, which is made up of like fighter pilots and stuff. And and some of the things you read on there from some of these people that we didn't serve with, because a lot of them are American or all over the world, uh, makes me realize that I think what happens in our air forces, there is a lot of human factors. There is a lot of appreciation and debrief. And in some air forces, maybe that isn't the case because one thing we spoke about before was ego and uh, how a lot of those guys that I, I read about on, on Facebook and stuff that are ex fighter pilots, they have never let their ego go. And some of us, I don't think, ever really had one in the first place. And you're one of those people. I don't believe there was any ego in that cockpit when you were flying. Yeah, well, I think we've all got ego. One of the things that, that my takeaways, I used to try to impress on my students, perhaps not successfully, is that generally we nobody is, is either as good or as bad as they think they are. Um, and, and you probably vacillate between whether you think you're too good or too bad. Um, and... You, you wouldn't strap yourself into a fast jet and go to war and get shot at or sign up for that sort of thing if you weren't reasonably confident. Um, those who appear the most confident, sometimes that is bluster to come up to cover up a lack of confidence. And um, whether that is actual deep down visceral, I am the greatest because I'm a fighter pilot or not, I wouldn't like to speculate. It certainly wasn't so for me. Any overconfidence anyone saw out of me was bluster to cover up a lack of confidence, I suspect. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was the emails you put out on a... Well, they used to be on a Friday, didn't they? The motivation emails. But now they seem to be a bit more regular, which is which is awesome because I get a lot from those. Um, just explain why you do that a little bit. Yeah, so so, so I, um, I put out an email on a Friday to a group of people both inside BT and outside BT um, with a motivational video that I found on the net. There's quite a lot there. Um, and when you start Googling motivational videos, strangely, Google throws up all sorts of stuff to you. Um, mostly because I think people need a bit of a boost in, in all walks of life. Um, and and I got a bit of positive feedback, a little bit of negative feedback from some of it as well. So uh, just dropped them off the distribution list in accordance with GDPR. Um, and uh, I now send out 
an article that I find interesting. I don't necessarily um, always agree with the article that I've uh, that I send out on a Monday. Um, just uh, something worth thinking about. Um, and on a Wednesday, I send out a, a quote, and it might be a motivational quote or a leadership quote, or um, and it could be personal or business related, but just something to think about. And then on a Friday, I send out a, a motivational video. Um, I, unfortunately, um, a lot of the motivational videos that are available online uh, come from America, and they're mostly about setting up your own business and becoming an entrepreneur. So I'm not sure whether I'm driving people out of BT to go and set up their own companies or not. But um, I certainly get some positive feedback about it. Um, and and the, the articles, uh, if it makes you think, uh, which I think is the, is probably the most important thing. Doesn't care. I don't really care whether I agree with the person who's writing the article or not. It, it's perhaps just worth. There's value in thinking about stuff a bit differently. Um, no, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I really like it because, as you said, some of the things I don't necessarily agree with, but then that's fine. I don't have to. You know, I haven't researched it properly, or maybe. But some of the stuff does knock you, and I think that's the important thing. You, you watch something, and you think. Yeah, I could put more effort in in the different area of my life that I've kind of maybe uh, taken for granted. So I think of anything, the stuff you put out is it's just it's good for refining your boundaries and just adjusting your sort of motivations. And that's something that you don't see happen in many companies. And that's an initiative that you've done by yourself, haven't you? The BT never asked you to do that. Yeah, nobody asked me to do that. I just thought it was a good idea. I started doing it, and um, and the snowballs starting to grow a little bit. Um, I now get people emailing me and saying, "I think you should send this out." Um, yeah, yeah. and, and so I typically do that, um, because it, it, it helps, well, it helps me looking for things and, it, and it helps with the engagement on it. Um, I, I'm happy to, to extend that out to other people as well. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't bother me in the slightest. Uh, I probably have to be careful about, about, uh, sharing email addresses too widely, but, um, uh, yeah, I think it's, it, it's just been a good little initiative and it, and it makes people jog along a little. It does. Um, it does. I think that's I think it's brilliant. I think people, more people should do that. It's the essence of leadership, isn't it? I tried to say when I was um, at Valley, uh, I wanted my team to grow higher than me. I always wanted to get them to promote further than I did. Uh, and that's, if you always try that as a leader, if you always try and get you guys to go ahead of you, then by that very nature, they're going to perform higher and, and be, be happier as a workforce, trying to prioritize the workforce over the uh, the bottom line, of course. Well, it's it's... It's really interesting. I've seen it in BT, two different leadership styles, and 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 I've seen it in um, in the Air Force before. But but in the Air Force, it was forced on you because of a posting regime. But in a civilian company, there's two different ways of thinking about creating your team. Um, one of them is I, I find really good people, and and when I find a really good person and they're doing a really good job, I keep a hold of them. Um, and the other one is. I find really good people, and when they're doing a really good job, I help them move onwards and upwards and grow. Um, and I'm a, more of a proponent of the second than the first, um, because if you get a reputation for being a good boss, and I've worked for some absolute crackers, much better bosses um, in BT than I had in the Air Force, um, and, and some average ones as well, um, that the, their style was to develop people, stretch them, and when they wanted to move on to something else, let them. And they got a reputation for being a good boss, and so good people wanted to come and work for them. So their teams were always great, and it was largely irrelevant who was actually on them. Yeah, no, I get that. I wonder why. I've been thinking about leadership in the Air Force. Now I've left, obviously, and I am I left at a time when I wasn't bitter about the Air Force, which is good because you don't want to leave when you're bitter, do you? But I don't know how we really teach leadership in the Air Force, apart from maybe the small courses we do down at Shrivenham. I, I think leadership, because people, are you born or are you made a leader, all that kind of stuff. But we we still need to uh, get that across to people that there is this leadership theme going through the service. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, I see a very different style of leadership outside than I saw inside, which is a, that's a whole nother podcast in itself, I suppose, isn't it really? But, yeah, well, there is a fundamental difference in an organisation where, um I can order you to do something, and if you don't yeah. do it, I can throw you in jail. Yeah. Um, compared to to the the influencing, I've got to convince you it's a good idea. Now, the great guys in the military do all that influencing and let people think it's their idea, nudge, cajole, all that sort of stuff. Um, but but there is a 
a fundamental difference in the do it or I'm going to court-martial you. Yeah, that's true. I remember once when I had a boss who came in and he gave me the priority for the day. This is your priority. Uh, okay, fine. So then five minutes later, he came in and said, oh, your second priority is, is this. Well, he, you know, I said to him, well, you can't have two priorities, boss. You know, what are we going to do with this? He said, well, I, I want you to just do these two things. I said, okay, well, I'll cancel my trip then and uh, I'll get them done for you. He says, no, don't cancel your trip. Just go, go flying, cancel your trip. And I said, well, boss, what if I tell you I can't do these things? And he said, I'll just tell you that I'm a wing commander. You know, and it's that kind of blanket, isn't it? Of basically say, well, I'm ordering you to do it, so get it done. And you can't do that outside the military because people literally just won't get things done. I find that. Yeah, you you do get the the odd, right, the priorities are this, this, and this in that order. Actually, no, I need to do them all. And you go, well, that isn't a priority then, is it? (laughs) There's no priorities at all. Um, Right, obviously, we're solving the world here, which is brilliant. Uh, However, I think we better... Tell people how you managed to save one of Her Majesty's aircraft, and uh, it probably is still flying today, isn't it? Uh, it, it is still flying today. That's amazing. You think about it. And I saw the pictures <laughs> you sent me, and actually, there's a, there's a minimal damage. The prop's still intact. It is in a field because it's gone off the runway, isn't it? And you put it into a bit of a ditch, but you walked away from it. I've got the recording of this actually, and we'll play that in a minute. And it ends when you open the canopy and obviously egress. But um, uh, I, I, what I'm going to do is read out the green endorsement you got now a green endorsement um really is for it says here for instances of exceptional flying skill and judgment which is obviously what happened in this case uh, and we'll discuss that and your your sort of uh, reference to it in a minute and it's uh, written up by as we said avm garwood who was air officer commanding of 22 group back in 2007 so what i'll do is i'll read the green endorsement then i know there's other sides to this as well because this is written in one way but you sent me an email after this where you you put your own slant on about your fears hopes dreams and everything else that was going on which we know happens uh and then we'll probably play the recording um that people will be quite interested in about what happens in the cockpit and uh it's, and we'll discuss that a little bit if that's okay because I, I really want to take out some lessons from this i think there's a lot of lessons in this we can take out so if you're happy, I'll just read this out now. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so it's green endorsement, then instance of exceptional flying skill and judgment. It says, on the 5th of September 2007, Flight Lieutenant Dunn was captain of a Takano T1 training aircraft on a navigational instructional sortie planned from RF Linton News to RF St. Morgan. Shortly after departure from Linton News and in instrument flying conditions, Flight Lieutenant Dunn noticed that the engine instruments indicated less power than would normally be expected for that phase of flight and assumed the student had throttled back. This was not the case, and the engine continued to behave abnormally, with the power reducing further. Flight Lieutenant Dunn took control of the aircraft, initiated a turn back towards RF Linton on news, and suspecting an engine control problem, switched to manual engine control mode in an attempt to restore engine power. This had no effect. Realising the gravity of the situation, Flight Lieutenant Dunn promptly informed his controlling agency, declared a mayday, and also had the presence of mind to request advice from the duty aircrew officer on the ground. Despite carrying out emergency drills from both cockpits, power output gradually reduced to sub-idle and the aircraft was unable to maintain height. Descending through 2,500 feet, the aircraft broke cloud and a civilian airfield was, with gliding activity was noted nearby. This airfield was subsequently identified as Ruffoth. Although the engine appeared to be running normally, the propeller control mechanism had reduced the effective power output to zero, which resulted in a higher than expected rate of descent and Flight Lieutenant Dunn realised that he would now not be able to reach Linton News. To make the aircraft's performance more predictable and improve the gliding range, Flight Lieutenant Dunn decided to shut the engine down and conduct a forced landing. He considered that Ruffworth was the only airfield where a safe approach and landing could be made, the only alternative being to abandon the aircraft. Throughout the approach, Flight Lieutenant Dunn prepared his student for possible ejection, continually reassured him and ensured that he was aware of the developing situation. The aircraft touched down and heavy braking was applied in an attempt to stop the aircraft on the runway, but unfortunately the tyres burst and the aircraft came to rest some 50 metres beyond the end of the runway. The crew then conducted a textbook emergency egress from the aircraft. Um, faced with an insidious and terminal engine problem that, despite all reasonable actions, could not be rectified, Flight Lieutenant Dunn's aircraft entered a high rate of descent and was in a position from which a forced landing at a known airfield could not be achieved. In identifying an airfield, albeit with gliding activity, Flight Lieutenant Dunn showed great presence of mind and skillfully flew his aircraft to get it safely on the ground, all the while dealing with the emergency and reassuring the student. This was a complex and unfamiliar emergency and Flight Lieutenant Dunn displayed captaincy, airmanship and handling skills well above that expected of his probationary instructor category. Furthermore, by having the courage to remain with the aircraft rather than eject, he also minimised any potential, uh, any potentially very serious collateral damage and saved a valuable aircraft. For these reasons, Flight Lieutenant Dunn is awarded a green endorsement to his flying logbook. Right, so you don't get many that read as well as that green endorsement wise. Um, when you actually read the text for an AFC, an Air Force Cross, it kind of that could actually be in that kind of category. 
I guess. Now, what was the result of this then? So obviously you've, you've got the aircraft on the ground. You actually went around some gliders, didn't you, at the end of the runway? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, in, in my head, before when from all my training, uh, I, I thought that putting the wheels on the ground was going to be the end of the of the problems. Um, unfortunately, putting the wheels on the ground was was only about halfway through the problems I had there. Um, I had judged that I would be able to stop for in the runway available between the beginning of the runway and where there were about four or five parked gliders and about fifteen people. Unfortunately, it didn't slow down nearly as quickly as I thought it would. Um, and so it became abundantly obvious that if I'd stayed on the runway, I was going to plow through those gliders and people. So I had to steer it off the runway, go between the gliders and a line of parked aircraft, back onto the runway with about 50 metres to go, realised I was going to go off the end of the runway. Um, it was only then that I, that I thought, uh, actually, if I backstick this, I could put more weight on the back, on the main wheels and get a bit more braking, I'd already burst all three tyres by then. Um, rather fortunately, actually, that raised the nose wheel off the ground again, because I was still going at a fair old clip. I was still doing about 50 or 60 knots when I went off the end of the runway. Um, in, in raising the nose wheel, that, that was probably a good thing, because there was about a, a two or three foot berm at the edge of the airfield into the potato field. So the main wheels hit that. We got airborne for about another 10 metres, and then nosed pretty heavily into the ploughed field. Um, and it all stopped then, um, w- which was good. Uh, rather fortunately, as you say, at, at three new wheels, they, they did some non-destructive testing on the nose gear, which proved that there was no damage, but they decided to change that anyway. Um, rather unfortunately, the engineers didn't really believe me that the engine didn't work. So instead of pulling the cockpit voice recorder immediately, they tried to start the engine, which means that the beginning of the cockpit voice recording is missing, um, uh, which is a bit of a shame, really. Uh, you, so you don't hear the first panicked maybe. Um, but yeah, it, it, it still it still raises the hairs on the back of my neck when I when I listen to that cockpit voice recording, and and I get a bit choked up when I'm when I'm briefing cadets at the Air Experience flight when everybody says maybe it gets me a bit tense again. Yeah, no, that's fine. And so what we'll do is I'll play that now uh, for uh, just the listeners because it's actually quite a difficult recording to listen to in, a, in a, anyway because, of course, the voice recording isn't brilliant. So I've done some editing and, and cleared up and got rid of a lot of the noise in the background, um, which I think if we left that in, it's, a lot of it is uh, you just can't actually understand what's happening. Uh, and then we'll just probably just discuss it a little bit at the end if that's all right. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so I'll play it now. Um, Kaiser's down, please. Yep, set. Okay, six Kaiser's feet. I've got max power set. Top still decaying. Right, the best option I can see is to take the EEC to normal. Take it back to normal for me, please. Back to normal. Okay. Take it back to normal, please. Back to normal. Taking control in the rear, run, line Mary, 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 run a 6 6 across the dial on this frequency. 6 6 6 6 6 6 6 6 6 6 6 6 6 6 
interesting to me is of course and i understand this because of course all the cockpits i've flown in the tornado gl4 and the hawk and everything else uh, are loud cockpits that takano is a loud cockpit isn't it it's yeah. it's, it's not as if it, i try and explain to people this is not working out something like when you're in a car and you're going down the motorway and you can talk to each other there's a lot of other things there's a lot of alarms there's a lot of stuff going on there's all when you as soon as you put out that mayday as you know the world now talks to you doesn't it uh, well so so the, there was an in, an initial bit where um, I went through the, uh, as it kind of alludes to in the in the green endorsement, but but it doesn't doesn't go through the the thought process. I, I spent quite a lot of time thinking, oh you you idiot, why have you selected the wrong power setting? This will give me something to talk about in the debrief. Yeah. Um, it followed reasonably rapidly by, oh actually you haven't selected the wrong power setting. No no this is okay. Um, and then I I did initially think that there's a whole thought process of an engine electronic control unit failure how tedious i know exactly how to fix this um i will just take this home we'll land there'll be a terrible faff while the engineers get me another aircraft i'll have to redo this sortie i'll be landing at st morgan at eight o'clock tonight i'll be absolutely knackered what a pain in the pants this is so so i told the student to take the eec to manual and at that point, because of the failure that I had, it got worse, uh, significantly worse. And the next words out my worth mouth were to key the mic and say mayday, 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 um, which I'd never said before in an aeroplane for real. Um, so, yeah, it came as a bit of a surprise to me how quickly it went, the thought processes went through. Um, and, and then after keying mayday, said to, to Hugh to prepare to abandon the aircraft, which I also didn't think I would uh, I would have to say. Yeah, that's engine electronic control, is it, the EEC? Yeah, EEC's uh, engine electronic control unit. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? So we, we go through these emergencies in the sim a thousand times, and I think it can always, always make us like lower arousal to them sometimes, which is 
probably the way uh, that we're supposed to be trained. I mean, I sometimes get surprised though. I, I surged a hawk, I've surged many hawks, um, but sometimes I get quite surprised the impact when you when you are up there and it does happen. Uh, it actually is quite overwhelming sometimes, isn't it? It's quite a sudden sort of uh, change into the way that you are you are feeling. And of course, then very soon we go back into uh, the very sort of calm way of dealing with the emergency, which when you, you can hear yourself on the on the tape there, it is quite calm. But the emergency didn't really work out in the way uh, that it kind of says in the green endorsement. There are some other things where you thought that you weren't going to get that jet on the ground. Yeah, well, so so it doesn't really cover it in the in the green endorsement. The the um, so high key um, for for a standard pattern for a Takano is two and a half thousand feet. Um, I was heading northwest and broke cloud at two and a half thousand feet with a southerly runway. Um, what's not in there is that there were thirty or forty foot high trees to the north of that southerly runway with gliders taking off in a northwesterly direction but parked on that runway. Um, north of the airfield is uh, the village of Rufferth. Um, so had I decided to land northbound, firstly, I wouldn't have been able to land because the gliders were on it. And then had I gone off the end of the runway, I'd have been into those 30 or 40 foot high trees. Um, so in deciding to land on it southbound, um, I had a bit of a problem with, with a... a trees in the undershoot and a village in the undershoot. So I ended up at high key uh, at about 1,200 feet, if I remember correctly. Um, I'm supposed to be gliding at 110 knots. Um, Low key is then 180 degrees out, so heading north again on the other side of the the runway. I'm supposed to be at 1,500 feet, and all of this is supposed to be flown at approximately 30 degrees angle of bank, not more than 40 um, so I end up flying this at 60 degrees angle of bank, pretty much. Um, I'm at low, in a low key position at 900 feet, still 60 degrees angle of bank on. Um, and on the tape where I start saying to myself 110, actually I've got 95 knots indicated with 60 degrees angle of bank. So I'm jolly close to stalling the aircraft in the final turn and, and killing us both. Um, at that point, I think I have properly messed this up. And my plan is to roll wings level and eject, which is prohibited from me because there's a village in front of me at this point. Yeah. So I decide that my only option is to lower the nose, put more bank on um, and point it at the airfield and then roll wings level and eject and throw it into the airfield. And it's only as I start to roll wings level to, uh, to pull the handle that I think... Oh, it'd be a bit churlish to eject now. I could just put this on the ground. Um, and unfortunately, this is all flooding through my mind at just the same point as I say down flap. But sadly, I don't have voice-controlled flaps. So without moving my hand, the flaps didn't move, strangely. Interesting. Um, and although I said it, I didn't do it. Um, so when I flare, and I've got 110 knots as I flare for the landing, uh, with a feathered prop, it just doesn't stop. And it doesn't actually touch down because I'm in ground effect. And that's not the way we train because no. when we train for it, we get to select idle and I get that huge drag from the prop that had been bringing me down at something like 7,500 feet a minute before I'd shut the engine down. So so the, the handling characteristics in the landing were markedly different, which came as a shock. I then realized that I am now doing 110 miles an hour towards a group of people standing looking like meerkats on the runway and think, I better get this slowed down. So I check forward on the stick and actually we, we touch down nose wheel first because the only thing I can think of to get drag on the aircraft is to get the wheels on the ground. So the skid marks are nose wheel first. Um, and then I say, get on the brakes. That was sort of to myself, but Hugh takes that as a cue to get on the brakes. What a shame he didn't say, he didn't take the down flap to move the flap lever. Um, so, uh, we both jump on the brakes at that point relatively quickly. We burst the tires, I suspect. Um, and then of course I have to steer off the runway and go around it. But once the wheels are on the ground, the, the ejection seat's only a, um, a zero 70 seat and you and I are both big lads. Um, so, so that's when you'll hear on the cockpit voice recording me telling you to stay with it. Cause what I didn't want him to do was get spooked and eject on the yeah. ground and kill himself. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's why I'm saying stay with it. And he says back to me, I'm staying with it. I'm staying with it. 
Um, and the only other thing that I that I suddenly thought about after we'd stopped and got out was that if one of those 15 people had decided to make a run for it towards the clubhouse, they would have closed my options for getting between the parked aircraft and the gliders and I would have killed them. Yeah. And I'd have been up on a manslaughter charge, I suspect. Well, you know, this is the thing, isn't it? We never know, do we, what what, what kind of happens to those things. It's the sort of thing that you can't really plan for. It's the unknown unknowns. You didn't know that there were going to be people with the gliders at the end of the runway and all these kind of things. I mean, it's when you're making your approach. I mean, there are some things come out of that. A zero seventy seat for the uh, um, for the people that are listening. That means you can be at zero height, doesn't it? But you need seventy knots of of airflow over the aircraft. Uh, the aircraft, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and if you're a big lad, you probably need more than that. Yeah, and more. and so that the 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 video that that you get shown going through training on the Takano, um, if you eject on a zero seventy in that seat, um, you get one. So, see, the the parachute opens and you're almost horizontal. And as you swing underneath the parachute, you hit the ground. Yeah. So it's 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 pretty brutal. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the sort of thing as well. One thing I used to brief to um, the students and obviously the instructors as well on the Hawk was uh, in a PFL profile, you've got an ascent rate of about 8,000 foot per minute. You know, when you're pushing the nose down, you're about 20 degrees nose down, that sort of thing, a bit less than that. But once you commit with that down flap, you really are committed. And a below 8,000 feet, an ejection won't save you because – the rate of descent uh, that they work out is about tenth of the rate of descent for the seat to actually work. So, uh, below about eight hundred feet, your the seat will come out and your the parachute will open, but you'll probably impact the ground before you get a fully developed canopy. And that's something that people don't aren't fully aware of. So, you need to brief these things when we talk about PFLs to know that you have an option up to that point. And if you're below eight thousand, if you're below eight hundred feet and it's not working out for you, you need to get that nose up and get a positive vector on the airframes so that you can actually get out and stand a chance of surviving. So. That sort of thing is, is very important, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that was uppermost in my mind in, 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 at the stage of flight that I decided I was going to point it at the airfield was um, lower the nose, increase the angle of bank, and then I was going to roll it wings level and pull the nose up. I need to cash in that, that speed I had um, to level it so that we could safely get out. So I was looking at trying to eject from about 100 feet substantially with no rate of descent but just just before the aircraft stalled yeah um but but then of course i'm not i'm not controlling it if that had played out it could have hit the clubhouse or the hangar and or indeed the people who were stood on the runway well if you if so. you'd taken if you'd taken full flap at that point you'd you'd have got especially on the runway you're taking full flap there's every chance the, airport, the aircraft would get airborne again wouldn't there really so Possibly, yeah, possibly. We do that from the board in the Hawk. I mean, obviously you get an airborne with, with mid-flap or, or half-flap, depending on which variant you're flying. But of course, one of the things is, you know, below 100 knots stick fully aft. And then we talk about taking uh, taking full or down flap. But of course, once you do that, there is a chance that the aircraft will be lightened and the braking will be less effective because the, the wheels won't be actually on the ground at that point because you'll start to float. So you have to be very careful about how much reduction in your actually forward speed they, that, that taking the flaps would actually do. But again, that's to be thought out before the emergency, isn't it? And of course, you had, yeah. no, you had no barrier. You never had a barrier for the Takano, though. I can't remember. It wasn't barrier no, clear, was it? No, we never, we never used the barrier for the Takano. It would have made a bit of a mess of you going into it in the Takano. Uh, and the prop makes it all a bit messy as well. So. Yeah. That's interesting. You talk about communication of, of saying, you know, full flap or down flap and it not happening. And we've all done that in the cockpit. And I, we all verbalise. I think a lot of, I don't know many pilots that don't verbalise their actions. And it comes from flying training, doesn't it? We want the instructor to know what we're doing. Um, but of course, I suppose in, in a way of communicating, if you'd said you know, down flap, please, then the student would have actually done that for you. Um, yeah yeah he probably would have um but but actually that's self-talk to myself yeah i know i know i'm saying that i'm not criticizing i'm saying exactly that yeah yeah Yeah, i mean we've all done it i'd be there you know what i mean where i've kind of gone ah if i'd done that um one thing i've I've written down here is is critics because whenever you do something that people haven't done before other people will start talking about it and they will have an opinion because pilots are very opinionated what were the opinions of the other pilots like when you uh you know in the crew after this uh, the investigating officer was brilliant about it. He'd had a very similar similar occurrence, um, and been given the Air Force Cross for it in, in a Hawk. Yeah, I know that. Um, yeah. And and Shep was fabulous. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, really nice bloke. Very good pilot it. as well. Great handling pilot. I mean, seriously, very yeah, talented. A, guy. a load better than I. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the other guys there, another very experienced guy, been the Takano test pilot, um, said, "Yeah." bloody frightening when that happens doesn't it, it happened to me in kuwait i put it down on a dual carriageway and Brilliant. he was great great about it um 
So, so the guys who'd been in that situation were fabulous. Um, the senior officers were um, all right. Um, and there was some pretty heavy criticism of, um, yeah, well, particularly from from senior A2s at the time, so A2s are above average. Yeah. Um, there was a, the, the, I got the impression that they thought that if they'd been put in that situation, they would have done a much better job than I had. Um, and and 11 years on and, and several thousand hours of flying and about 1,600 hours of instruction later on both the PC-9 and the Takano, I look back at this and as an A2 now, I wouldn't have done it any better if you gave it to me again. Yeah, well, we always say only you know fifty percent of these these actual force landings will ever get in. Um, a lot, a lot of it is it's not guesswork, is it? You do what you can, and you've got a process you went through, and you did exactly the same thing. So I think that's why people are very well. People should be other pilots very reluctant to criticise another pilot's emergency. Um, we're all doing it in the cold light of day, you know, listening to the audio recording or w- watching the the replay on on Amper or one of the replay systems. Very easy there, isn't it? In the cold light of day to be critical. Uh, and it's it's very interesting. You were a B one at the time, were you? Uh, I was a B two. You're B two, really? Only, yeah, I was I was only probationary. Probationary, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah uh, I was only out of CFS. Crikey! Two or three months. So amazing. Like That's incredible that you'll still be criticised as a B two instructor. You still have A twos. If people out there don't don't understand, when when you come out of uh, central flying school, you come out of your instructor qualification. You came off the F three, didn't you? Um, yeah. Yeah. So you came off the F three as a, as a pilot on the F three. Just one tour, was it? Yeah, just one, well, one tour as a pilot, one tour as an aviator before that. Yeah, of course. And then you go into flying instruction on the Takano. Uh, so even if you're a frontline pilot, you're not an instructor, so you have to be taught to be an instructor. And that's uh, when Central Flying School teaches you to do that on the squadron. So you go through probably about nine months, I would have thought, for yourself and, and me. Uh, and you become a B2. A B2 is a probation instructor for about six months. And then, if I'm correct, in six months. And then you're looking to upgrade six or nine months later into uh, your B1. Sometimes it's a bit longer than that, depending on the hours. Uh, when you become B1, you are then an accredited instructor and then you'll move up into A2 and then, if you got like into A1, I don't think we have any A1s. We must have A1s left in the Air Force. We've got some A1s knocking about, haven't we? But no one really does it. So, But an A2 is an above-average pilot and an above-average instructor. So you're probationary and you get hit with this emergency that most A2s, by the way, would probably like to have. Well, so so PFLs are are, are, are done so, or were at the time. They're not done so much in, in any anymore yeah, yeah. um at the time it was bread and butter stuff everything ended up with a pfl yeah but but you do get sort of complacent in the oh right particularly single engineer oh we're going to have an oil pressure caption and this is going to lead to the engine failing yeah, yeah. um and and if you're an instructor you, you you've got ticks that you need to get to get sorted done so seeing the student go i can't get this back to the airfield i'm going to eject probably doesn't cover that off um, so you get given a PFL in the place where you can get it in from. Um, and the other thing about this, was, so, so if you feather the prop in a, in a Takano, it goes down at about 1,000 feet a minute, roughly, give or take, Yeah. Um, if you keep the ball in the middle. And at 110 knots, it's fine. It, it's not a particular, from 7,500 feet, that shouldn't be a particularly pressured emergency. Yeah. With the... The failure that I had, the engine instruments suggested that the engine should be running. In fact, it was running, but it was running at sub-idle. Um, and, and what happens is that six-foot prop is like a six-foot parachute. And so you you are continually pushing the nose down um, to maintain your 110 knots. Um, and with the, 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 the fuel flow decaying continually, it's getting worse and worse. So we were going down at more like 7,500 feet a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so you can you, you can tell in the timing um, of the cockpit voice recording just how quickly it all goes. But the the whilst trying to work out what on earth is going on, you know, why is this aircraft that that should be giving me power not giving me power? Um, and and it's only when the the duty aircrew officer says and check the SDL and he talking to him afterwards thought I had inadvertently have to pull the emergency shutdown lever. Um, and when my hand goes back to check that I hadn't inadvertently pulled it, um, I think that's a good idea. I'll just shut this down and land it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you why, because it's something I brief as well a lot, and you, you know I do. It's um, 
Just get to one known parameter, whether that's a height or a speed. Get rid of the thing that's causing you confusion. And what's causing you confusion right now is you don't know how much power that engine's giving you, right? And so you don't know what the profile is going to be like. But if you just shut that thing down, get it out of the way, don't try and restart it. That's gone now. That whole thing's gone. Now you can work on the emergency. And that emergency might well lead to an injection, but it doesn't matter because you got rid of the engine that's causing you some kind of weird issues, isn't it? So... Yeah, thing, things got better, actually. <laughs> as soon as I shut it down, the, my world got better um, because I was in a sort of known scenario. Not a great known scenario, I'll grant you, but it, at least it was known then. Um, you faff around and, with it all day, can't you? Trying to relight engines that don't want to start and, and then you know miss the points you need to be at to conduct a proper force landing. So, uh, But then again, that's, that's quite ballsy as well to shut down the one thing that might be giving you power. And that's you, you've got to be... Sure, and I think when it, when you hear your flight tape, the, the cockpit voice recording, there's enough confusion going on already to just say, "I'm going to get rid of the engine. That's it. I'm, it's not working for me." So, I mean, that eminently is quite a sensible decision, I think. Yeah, and it's obvious that you know, positionally, we weren't that aware of where we were because we were IMC. Um, I had not taken a direct track back to Linton because I'd been faffing with the engine and and not kept the ball in the middle. Um, so, so there was lots of lots and lots of stuff I could do better. Um, and, and I was pretty honest about that at the time. Um, uh, but again, as, as, as part of some of the, some of the, the armchair experts, yeah, if you just shut the engine down immediately. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to immediately hit the ESDL. It's the first thing I'm going to do, isn't it? With a, a troubled engine, I'm just going to throw it out the window. Yeah. But that's it. You get that, unfortunately. And I think you're always going to get those people. What, what would you have done anything differently? Um, I think overall, if I'd just known where I was a bit better, yeah. Um, because when the the initial emergency happened, I was overhead Elvington. Oh, wait, okay. And and that would have been just genius to pop out a cloud and yep. have ten thousand feet of runway. Um, but uh, I I tried to get back to Linton. There's no moving map over there. You had no. There's no, nothing. There's no, moving map there's no GPS like or anything like that. It's not no, like I'm, get sat nav in your car or something. You know, it's not like that. I'm I'm in cloud and I've got a needle that's pointing at Linton and yeah. that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it, so there were lots of points at which I uh, I could have done better. But on and, and Helmut von Munkel, the elder, the every <laughs> every plan nor no plan survives contact with the enemy. But but um, that's precisely how it felt. Or 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 Mike Tyson and quoting Mike Tyson is probably never a good thing. Um, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's exactly what it felt like. It was. It's that level of shocking, um, and having been punched in the mouth, it, it, it's shocking when that happens. And 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 you go from that fat, dumb, happy, yeah, I can sort this out like I've done in the simulator a million times to what is going on now. I think until you've had an emergency like that, you you can't really begin to understand what what goes through in a very short space of time it's interesting when you talk about violence as well i mean i've been in a lot of fights at university and i know to avoid fights i mean and at university i didn't know to avoid fights i used to walk around um, bristol all the time and i've been punched square in the face as well don't get me wrong and you're absolutely right it it, it is so destabilizing i mean it's it, it's a complete adjustment from the norm isn't it in the same way that this sort of thing is also very much a, we've trained for it, we've planned for it, and it happens, and it just moves you off to one side. Everything else goes out the window, doesn't it? But yeah. it's, um, especially when you start involving air traffic, and I've talked about this before, that for me, the last thing I really want to call, I think I wrote uh, an essay about this, hitting a bird and not calling a, a mayday until very late on into the emergency, because there's nothing that air traffic could have done for me at that point. I'm out of gliding range of any airfield anyway. If the engine doesn't restart on us, um, then I'm just going to have to eject. So there's no point talking about traffic and saturating myself. Whereas you, in your moment, so you had to get onto them because they had to tell you where the nearest available field was. Yeah, so, so, so I went straight for the Mayday. And two things. I, I remember in the middle of it all, having just said Mayday, the next radio call was from air traffic to tell me that, that my steer for Linton was whatever it was. Um, and then somebody decided to tell them that he was going en route. And I remember being fleetingly angry at him for not shutting up and letting me get on with it. Um, yeah. You might be doing but, you a favour though to say, "Look, I'm on route. I'm out of here. Just I'm off the frequency now." You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure that was his th- yeah, thought process. Yeah. There was a flash of, "Oh, shut up!" I'm yeah, busy. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a helicopter mate, isn't it? Telling you his life story on startup. It's like, oh, come on! I just want to call for taxi. What are you yeah. doing? <laughs> <It's> like, 
I'll get loads of anti-helicopter banter now. My channel's going to blow up, isn't it, from helicopter mates? But uh, no, I know exactly. Well, that's the thing, because brevity is the key, isn't it? Because other people, like yourself there, are dealing with things. So we're very, I think this probably manifests itself in our relationships as well, the way we communicate with our partners, is we tend to be quite brief and black and white. And um, and there's no sort of shades of grey at all. It's it's very factual and and straight. It, it, It is. And, and funnily enough, now that I, I spend a lot more time listening to general aviation chat flying out of Cosford, I think I, I do I do get that flash of, oh, shut up. I'm trying to get a radio call in here yeah, now. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm going to have to orbit now around it just to, just to say a few words. Yeah, exactly. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think brevity is the key there. And that's actually probably a lesson for life, isn't it, when you're in meetings and things and, and people just want to – because we think by speaking. That's how we come up with ideas. And I, I work with people at the moment who will – will be talking in in a meeting and you know that really they're thinking for themselves in this meeting and that thinking should have been done beforehand but they will sit in a meeting and they will say well something I'm thinking about is and it will drag the meeting out and everyone else gets bored everyone else wants to leave whereas really they could probably take that offline outside I mean that's a lesson isn't there it is a lesson one of the things that I notice in meetings is um is people think of their own time they don't think of other people's time yeah absolutely yeah so so if you've got 20 20 managers all getting paid 100 pounds an hour or whatever they're getting paid yeah you know for you to waffle on for 20 minutes is is a lot of money well, you've exactly. just burnt it's also who you invite into the meeting like why does he need to be here i'm in a meeting with 30 people and i know what they're all getting paid and it's an horrific amount of money and it's going on past the hour and you're thinking this this is this is not worth having half the people in here. Insofar in as you, you can say, can you write, first 10 minutes is going to be about production, so I need the production team in. At 10 past, we're going to finish that bit and we're going to talk about supply. Then from supply, we're going to... That's how it should be being run, but um, with an agenda and uh, with minutes at the end. But it, it's very easy to call a meeting because it looks like you're doing something, doesn't it? Um, yeah, well, well, yeah. It's um, Meetings are the practical alternative to work, I think, yeah, is, I think the, right. um, is the cynical way of, of viewing it. I'm not a massive meeting fan. I don't think I have been really, but until I find an alternative, unfortunately. One thing I've stopped doing though is um, wearing an accurate watch because I used to. <laughs> we obviously we time is critical to us, isn't it? And I used to wear a watch. Uh, it was a Citizen. I still got it. It's a great watch. I wear it sometimes. I was wearing it this week, but it's a Citizen uh, Nighthawk. It's an AT uh, Eco Drive thing, and it's it's radio controlled, so it gets a signal at 4 a.m. in the morning, and it's accurate to like 0.001 second over every hundred thousand years. Um, I don't tend to wear that one in the civilian workplace now. I tend to wear an automatic watch that I set just a couple of minutes fast, that's all. Because what I used to happen is call a meeting on time and no one would turn up, of course, for the next five minutes. And it was inherently frustrating. So, The, uh, my, uh, the, the joke I normally say about, uh, about the, the adjustment from being in the military to being in the civilian world is when I left the military, I expected meetings to start on time and people to do what they were told. Um, now I am absolutely delighted if the meeting starts within the first fifteen minutes, yeah. and and people do what they said they were going to do. Oh yeah, how many times have you been in a meeting where people have said, "Oh, I haven't done that yet," and you think, "Well, if you told me that before the meeting, I could have put it back a day," because because now we haven't got the material we needed from you. Um, and I suppose, uh, how do we get better at communicating that? You know, that's the thing. I'm still. It's the sort of thing I write about. Is, is how do we get that across as a team? It's interesting. I'm not too sure. I've actually got the, the, the thing. The thing I'm still wrestling with is, and, and and I'm completely aware of it from from my teaching team and my coaching team. Sure. P- people behave. You get much better performance out of people from from a positive feedback, and you've done a great job there. And and I, I'm a great believer in it because I see it in myself as well. The difficulty comes if 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 things are not going to plan and people just haven't done what they said they were going to do or or what needed to be done. I struggle with communicating that in a soft enough positive way. At least teaching students in the air force, if they hadn't done if they hadn't delivered the goods on the on the mission, you could say in the debrief, actually, mate, that wasn't good enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and and. People don't react well to that in the civilian world. But we're quite thick-skinned, aren't we, in the military? I mean, I with my relationship now, I'm, I'm going through coming out of the military. They don't teach you how to be out of the military, do they? They don't undo the military, as we know. And I think Ant Middleton, the SBS guy uh, on that SAS, Are You Tough Enough program, he's got he's trying to come up with half a million pounds at the moment to get about 30 advisors in. So when people leave the military, you go through these people and they try and undo the military for you, which I think is a great idea. He's from the same um, town I am, Waterlooville in, in Portsmouth. 
So and I understand his frustrations because we leave the military and we don't do these things. Now, we're quite thick-skinned in the military, so we can be direct with people. And we're actually quite confrontational people. And you don't mind confrontation, and I don't mind confrontation because we know it's the best way to get things done in that pressured environment. But it does not work outside of the military. And in fact, if anything, it causes people to be less receptive to what we're saying uh, and to be more on guard. And, I mean, I've, you know, it's very easy to get complaints put against you from the way that um, you know, we can talk in that civilian workplace. No one really teaches you how to do that, do they? No, no. And, and it's something. It's, so I'm, I'm getting good at it if I think about it. Yeah. But it's, it's effortful. And, and so if I get caught on the hop, I can yeah. sometimes default to, no, that's not good enough, fella. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And, and we understand that because we would react to that. If you said that to me, I'd be like, okay, that means it's not good enough. I'll do something about it. And I'm not upset by it. I'm not upset by it. I'm understanding of it. And I probably would go and debrief myself as to why I was not able to accomplish what you've asked me to do. One of the ways I do it now, um, and I found it quite useful, is I, is I ask a question. I say, what do I need to do to make sure that you're able to deliver on what we agreed. You see what I mean? And then they come back and say, oh, okay, well, um, maybe I've had a bit more direction early on. Okay, well, that's great. So now we've got a narrative going that we didn't have before and we both bought into that thing and I'm not challenging them on the failure of their performance. Yeah, I, I, I find that, so, I mean, that's a classic consultant technique is, is ask the right question and, and that is genius advice. Um, and, and if I have the time, I try to phrase it as a question. Yeah. It's when I get caught on the hop. I, I just know, go, I know. What, just, get what, it done. what have you done that for? Yeah, exactly. Two days. <laughs> <laughs> just get it done. Stop being an idiot. Oh, you're absolutely right. I kind of miss that side, though. I do miss that side, but it doesn't work in relationships. And as I'm saying to my wife right now, I'm, I'm treading very lightly because, of course, you know, we're forced together. Now we're outside the military and uh, my behavior in the military, which has obviously worked very well. And I was promoted into positions of authority, which I'm very grateful for as I said, does, does not work. It works well when you're talking to other people. And I work with um, uh, a company at the moment and that's got quite a heavy military element in it with some of the guys that you would have flown with as well are, are in that in that company. Uh, so when we talk together, you, you get things done. In fact, I went out uh, recently to uh, Eastern Europe to look at an airplane that we're, we're bringing in. And the management side of this company, who we're buying this airplane of, uh, were telling me how many hours they thought the pilot's would need to be trained on this airplane and it was in the order of let's say about 20 hours which i thought was quite a lot but it's a single seat airplane um hawk size and i said okay but all these pilots are going to come from typhoon or, or, or tornado or whatever they're going to have 2000 hours they're going to be um radar operators already whatever it might be uh qfis probably and they said oh we still think you need 20 hours and i said okay can i speak to a pilot one of your pilots and there was a young guy called david um i sat down with him for an hour and pilot's a pilot the first thing he said to me was um he said, well, just two pilots. Let's just shout it out. I said, absolutely. He said, I can't lie to you. We're just too honest, right? I'm like, absolutely. I said, David, do I need 20 hours? He said, no, you need five. <laughs> you need five at that. He goes, and even then he goes, um, I can't really, I can't really train you because we haven't really got enough people. So I'll train like half your people, send them back to the UK and then you just train the rest of them. And it's that kind of honesty that we have is that direct approach that cuts through all those barriers, all that kind of whatever it is the commercialism of, of of these kind of things and drives to the point at home but you have to do it when you're talking to the right people and if i did that with anyone else it would never have worked you know what i mean well it would never have worked and he probably he probably got cut off at the knees by his commercial yeah, exactly. manager afterwards oh saying, yeah, yeah. But, but we've got a 50 percent margin on yeah, that exactly. training hours <laughs> but it was beautiful and he says look honestly i just i can't really be bothered to train you guys i haven't got the capacity here i'm working with this other air force and so i'll give you five hours that's more than enough and he's absolutely right you know he is right because there's so much more we can do now through synthetics and simulated technology and this kind of stuff that uh, you know, as, as long as I can get the guys to a certain level to get on this airplane, a lot of the training can be done in the air. We know that. But um, well, you're, you're you're right and you're wrong in in the synthetics. That's why I love you. Okay, um, <laughs> that's the honesty right there, isn't it? I love that. You, you're wrong. Brilliant. So so you're you're right for for all the procedural stuff, all the rest of it. Sure. But but you're you're back to um you you're back to not getting the adrenaline. Um, and and the the impact on your human performance. Absolutely. So yes, it's stressful to go to to go and do a check ride. I get that. You you'll be a bit um, stressed out about that. Yes, it's stressful to go to your sim check. But when it's all going wrong and and you've got a central warning panel like a Christmas tree, uh, and you're plummeting at the ground, you know that you pull the handle, everything stops. You go, you go and have a cup of coffee and have a chat about it. Yeah. 
it's not the same as if I pull this handle, I could end up in a wheelchair. And I think it's very interesting you say that because, of course, with F35, we're going to see very heavy simulator usage, it looks like. Um, for the for the young guys going on, young guys and girls going on to that, of course, um, because of course the aircraft is expensive to operate and it needs a lot of airspace and everything else. And I understand fully why. It's interesting. Did you ever refly your profile in the sim, by the way? Yeah, I did actually, um, be- because they created that that very um, that that very emergency, and and it's mandatory training now on the Takano, although not for long. Um, uh, and I did fly it again. Um, uh, I ejected in the uh, when I did it in the sim, uh, as did virtually everybody else who did it. Like a sunny um, emergency, isn't it? Landing in the Hudson, that kind of stuff. No one else could kind of yeah. Yeah, and and and, I, and I, ironically, I found watching Sully quite emotional because yeah. I was taking myself back to, um, to the to the time wh- where this had happened to me. So no, I understand that, and that's and that's that's understandable. I think there is there is a lot of emotion there, isn't there? You listen to some flight tapes sometimes, and you know what's going through. It could be anyone's flight tape. You know, you get the flight tapes on the internet and stuff, don't you? With people doing things, anyone, and you know what that pilot's going through because you've been there in the first place. And I think Sully was a very interesting one, wasn't it? Because I felt exactly the same way. It was it was quite emotional, I think, when he first puts out that call about landing in the Hudson. It's like, well, that's pretty terminal. But in the same way, I think he mentally, he probably prepped himself for that. Insofar as, uh, I remember reading about a guy who saved a woman who had thrown herself under a train in the underground. And this guy, without hesitation, jumped on, into the middle of the tracks, held her down, and the train went over both of them. Now, that's an amazing feat of courage, don't get me wrong. No two ways about it. But the man had travelled on that train every day for the last sort of 10 years. There is something to say that he may well have been thinking about that beforehand. Like, can two people fit under the train? You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, he's thought it through. Yeah. Um, in the 12 months programme I'm doing at the moment with about 600 people in that, in that group, we're talking about being present in the moment. And one of that being present is about preparedness and actually thinking ahead about what if. And it's, I've written about this before, haven't I? The Sturks used to talk about it. Um, pre-mortem effect of thinking uh what would happen if my house burnt down or if i got robbed or if i got flooded in my business that kind of stuff it's having that forethought which um which i guess is and that's why your emergency was quite difficult i suppose because no one had ever done a simulator with that before that gradual breakdown that insidious demise of the capability of your aircraft yeah well, well the, i mean that that particular failure as um had actually happened but not in an raf Takano, uh, as as the Takano test pilot told me um uh, but it had been in a in a Q80 Takano, and he he had stuck it down on a dual carriageway. Um, but but the, the the learning hadn't obviously flowed to the other air force um, either through shorts or. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? Interesting because the same thing was with the Hawks. I remember there was no one centralised Hawk like incident management scheme or anything like that. We we knew of all the Hawk incidents that we were having in the air force. In the Air Force, of course, and in the Navy, we we learn about those ones, but we wouldn't learn about the ones that were happening in on the Goshawk or out in Australia on their Hawk or anything else, which I've always found a bit strange. Maybe maybe this podcast is the answer. Well, maybe that's I, it. I, I, I suspect um, that that the answer is a is a centralised reporting system, but but uh, that has problems in its own because I I think you could big data a whole load of this stuff if you could clean the data up and then yeah. start seeing things. Um, the, the tricky bit is for an at an organizational level how do you um how do you measure how safe an organization is because if if it's uh safe by not having many incident reports then you won't get many incident reports if it's safe by having lots of incident reports then strangely you'll get all sorts of incident reports that aren't really safety problems like my velcro got stuck to the guy next to me um yeah. which i saw recently that's a made that's a made in itself isn't it you know what i mean stuck to the guy next to me i don't really like it very much so i'm stuck to him. the thing is though some countries it's very difficult to I mean, we'll wrap this up john really i mean seriously i know you got to get back and um some some air forces are very reluctant to release that kind of data even internally uh my brother flew for the canadians and that was quite difficult he was a flight safety officer he found it quite frustrating to to not be able to get hold of flight safety reports and to socialize the, the lessons learned within that to the rest of the people because some commanders feel they might be a bit embarrassed about what's happened on their squadron and there's mentalities that still exist not so much in the air force i think we're very open probably too much so in some areas but in i'm saying in other air forces that maybe are developing at a different rate yeah i, I think so um i think so, so when I introduced human factors at training at Linton, um, one of the challenges from the old hands was, oh, this is a lot of rubbish, John. And um, you get this from sitting in the in the crew room talking to to the old boys, and, yeah. and this is 
and and actually, at, at the time, I was really pissed off about it. And and don't be so stupid. You've, it's really important that you do human factors training. But I've reflected on it a bit, and and they're right. That is essentially how human factors training happened before. Was yeah. sitting chewing the fat in a crew room and listening to to what the older, more experienced guys had. But the guys don't have time to do that, Nate. No, they don't. They don't. And you and you can't audit that. You can't say, have you done your six hours in the crew room chatting right. with some right. wizened old geek? Yeah. Um, so, so, so human factors training in a formalized way fills that hole. Yeah. And, and is, it's right. Did we have human factors training formally before? No. Did we have it in an informal way in the crew room? Probably. Yeah, I, I did the crew resource management training course when I left the Air Force. Um, that was a, a couple of weeks. And that was really to sort of solidify what I'd learned and what I was writing about also um so I can now go and teach that which is which I which I tend to I go to companies and we talk these things through but also you have to remember the younger generation are more sensible than us they don't tend to go to the bar every night either um so those lessons aren't being socialized amongst them it's a it's a very quiet bar during the week rightly so arguably because you you can't have a few beers and get in jets like you know we used to but of course the lessons are, are lost aren't they unfortunately well, yeah, I mean, and and I jokingly say that um, that when I joined the Air Force, it was a drinking club with a passing interest in aviation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that is so true, isn't it? We all remember those times, crikey, don't we? But um, that's it. I mean, I think what we should do in future is get you back on here to talk about human factors because I, I do love the stuff you put out. Uh, it's very relevant. And this is only obviously, obviously within BT now, isn't it? I mean, do you go and speak? Obviously, you said you talked to uh, AAFs and things like that. Well, I've just been um, just been hired as an independent safety expert for EASA, okay. um, and they've asked me to write some articles for them. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I need to work out what to write about and not be too opinionated and, and get shot down. Well, you're not um, that guy, though. Are you? You're not an opinionated guy. I mean, one of the things that the paper reported on your emergency it said, um, "Flight Dent Dunn said uh, modestly, I think it's much better to be lucky than good,' <laughs> which, which I love. Which, which is true. That's... And Na- Napoleon said, "Give me lucky generals. I've got good ones coming out my ears." Exactly. Um... Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. But no, so, it's very uh, true. So yeah. you're going to write some stuff, then, are you? I mean, you've written stuff um, before. That I've read. This is very yeah. Good. I've I've written some stuff before, and and but I, I'm a little nervous about doing it because what I want to do is pr- provoke discussion. Yes. And, and and like the articles that I send out, that I don't send out my own articles on a Monday. Um, I, I'm, I don't care whether you agree with me or not. No. Um, I just like to provoke discussion about it. Um, and sometimes people can take that the wrong way. Yep. Yep. So they um, can, but there's the thing. I mean, you can sit on the fence and you can try and please everyone, but that will not work. And I've I found this in my writing as well. Sometimes I'll put a post up on FJP, and I know it's going to be divisive. And I put it up there on purpose because I want people to seriously think about how they're thinking about that particular subject. It it, it might push into an area of the Air Force that the Air Force are going to come back at me with, and that's fine. Uh, right now, for example, it would be very interesting to talk about the multi-engine flying training and the amount of assets they have, and and what a l3 doing and why are we um, putting people down there now it's not to do with loss of assets or anything it's more to do with the fact that we're putting more people through that flying training system but let's argue we could that when you buy five aircraft to train your multi-engine pilots on if you have a bird strike you lose 20 percent of the fleet and we can leave that there because not much is coming out from that at the moment but we know there's some issues up there with with mfts so i do i do push that because i think these things need to be spoken about um, in the same way that you've got ten. I mean, how many Ducanos did you have? One hundred and thirty, I think it was. Yeah, we had a, we had one hundred and thirty at the yeah. time. And now we've got ten and, and of those. So, so. so interestingly, you, you talk about multi-engine training, and, and in my time in the Air Force, um, there was a big push to reduce the cost of training and get people into cockpits faster. Yes, yes. So we went down the road of well, actually, our Hercules pilots are they're only essentially doing what an airline pilot does. Why couldn't we just train them like airline pilots? Yeah, absolutely. And we and we did that. Yeah. And then, of course, we went to Iraq and Afghanistan. All of a sudden, we've got multi-engine crews going into unprepared desert strips on yep. NVGs. And strangely, our accident rate went through the roof. And you go, mm, well, the cause and effect are about 10 to 15 years apart. But you can see why that happened. Here's another thing, John, as well. It's quite interesting. What if you fly your Hercules into a 737 on your approach at Heathrow? Now, who has licensing in these aeroplanes? The 737 guy has got a formalized license system. It's got ATPLs, and the Hercules guy doesn't. I mean, we left the Air Force with nothing, and yet we flew jets. I remember walking through Inverness Airport. I put a tornado into their uh, back end of a Friday, and I walked in there Monday to pick the thing up. And, of course, I'm carrying a knife. I'm carrying flares, which is a Class 1 firearm. And the guy said to me, where's your license? And I said, what do you mean? He said, where's your flight license? How do I know you can fly the tornado? I said, I've got nothing. There is nothing yeah. at all. 
Uh, there's no, how do we validate the training? We validate our own training, of course. Um, and obviously now we have the MAA against the CAA. But if you put all the multi guys, if you put everyone through an ATPL at some point, at least you know they've done that regulated training and then we can specialize on top well it's it's a shared risk model and again i said this when i was in still in the air force is is if if i crash the aircraft into um the primary school or the bus full of nuns yeah uh, at the subsequent board of inquiry they can go well the guy wasn't trained well enough blah 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 blah. um at the moment that all falls on the air force and cfs oversee the training and and so so it is a risk mitigation or it's not a risk mitigation because it's not mitigation it's um it, it's m- moving part of that risk, like an insurance policy. Yeah. So then, at, at the subsequent court case, the Air Force can say, "Well, yes, it was down to his poor training, um, and the training was ours, but it's certified by the CAA. So mm. actually, I'm only paying fifty percent of this claim, which is a brutally commercial way of looking at it. But, but you know, we we live in a brutally commercial world. It all comes down to money. Everything does in the end. It's just just the way it works. It comes down to cost, doesn't it? Maybe we can't afford to put everyone through ATPL training. I I personally think we can. And when I was the RM uh, bringing the the Phenom in, one of the suggestions to Ascent Flight Training was just do an ATPL syllabus as a start, go. And then when they get onto their types, we'll then go and do the tactical training element. But... It's uh, again, it's it comes down to cost, doesn't it? And I know there's there's a lot of arguments involved, um, plus or minus, but uh, it's it is it is what it is. Is um probably the the, the, the yeah, wrong answer. It but, is. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, look, I really appreciate you coming on. I think it's gonna be really valuable to people. I think there's a lot of stuff that's come out of that. And one thing I really like, and this is why I wanted you to be on the podcast, is I, I know your humility that you have, the humility that you have as an individual, um, reaches out to people and it, it says to people, look all jet mates don't have an ego this is not what it's about we can all learn from our mistakes and a lot of things you said in this podcast is that you have made some mistakes um especially during that emergency and and ongoing and of course we all do it's one thing i'm interested in at the moment is self-awareness really understanding my own capability i'm probably never going to be the ceo of a big multinational that's absolutely fine but where can i fit in to do the best i can within that and i think you've got that self-awareness in uh, in spades so it's brilliant having you on i really appreciate it yeah, I'm not going to be the CEO of a big multinational either, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but but uh, as as another F three mate who who is the CEO of not quite a big multinational, Hugh Griffiths said, you him. just need to try and make the world that you can touch better. Yeah, yeah, every um, day, every day. So every day. No, I really appreciate it. Well, that's great. I'll um I'll wrap it up, John. Really, I'll just do a bit on the end of this, mate. Super. Cool. Cheers, Tim. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, and uh, well, that's it. That was with John Dunn then, XF3 pilot, um, Takano instructor and PC9 instructor, now works for BT. Um, leadership qualities in abundance. I really hope you got something out of this. If you do, hook me up, get to FJP, send me an email, whatever you want. Let me know how you, um, uh, what you thought of it. That'd be really appreciated, okay? Tim Davies, Fast Ship Performance.